A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Podditors. I hope you're well. I'm going to try and be less awkward in these introduction bits, but. I don't know what it is. I just sound really awkward. It might be something to do with the fact that I have to record them under my duvet cover. So it does get quite warm and fusty under here. Um, and that's because my producer, Hi Spike, says that that's how you get the best sound. So it could be that. But anyway, this week I speak to the lovely Scarlett Curtis, who is a journalist, author, activist and curator of Feminists Don't Wear Pink and Other Lies. And her latest title is why it's not okay to feel blue and other lies. And so this episode is why it's okay to feel blue. And we discuss kind of both elements of those books. Uh, Feminism, why it's important that we try to include men in our feminism, how to be intersectional, and also touching on mental health and why it is okay to talk about it and why you should reach out and get help if you need some. I really hope you enjoy the episode and do check out Scarlett and her work. She is a force to be reckoned with. Bye. Hi guys and welcome to Adulting. Today I'm joined by Scarlett Curtis. Hi. How are you doing? I'm good. Yeah, this is so nice. We're sitting on the floor and I feel very cosy and fun. Yes, very relaxed. Yeah, very relaxed. Oh, you just told me that I didn't, um, what's the word? What's it called? Lisp. Lisp and I just lisped. Really? I went relaxed. I have a lisp <laughs> anyway. So when I have my Invisalign and it's like major lisping. I've never noticed you lisp. A tiny lisp. I noticed it when I listen to podcasts. I never listen to myself on podcasts. No, I do not like listening to myself yeah, back. Yeah, horrible. Yeah, it's quite stressful. Okay, amazing. Do you want to tell people who you are and what you do? So, my name is Scarlett Curtis. I say I'm a writer and an activist. I do a lot of journalism. I have also have a podcast. Um, and I also run a feminist activist collective called The Pink Protest with three other amazing women. And we do like feminist campaigning and events and we also produce a lot of podcasts. And then I have done, I did, brought out a book called Feminists Don't Wear Pink and Other Lies and I'm just about to bring out another one called It's Not Okay to Feel Blue and Other Lies. Amazing. It is a very complicated title, no one can get it right. I keep just calling it the blue book. Yeah, but it's it's such a good, I was actually going to say this to you, it's so clever, the colour idea, because it's really clever to branch out on that. Yes, I hope so. Um... Uh, yeah, and then we'll you can see. have a nice we'll little see. collection. Um, I want to ask you, how long has the pink protest been around now? So I think we, I started it, and then the others kind of came on board about two and a half years ago. Cool. Yeah. So we we do we do a kind of a lot of things. I mean, it's run by four girls, all of whom have other jobs, so it's a bit hectic. But we have done two major campaigns where we changed the law, which was very cool. And then we've done a few other really fun campaigns. We did a campaign on wanking, which was great. Um, Encouraging people to wank more, girls to wank more. Um, And then, yeah, we do pretty much like monthly events. And we now produce four podcasts, which is very fun. It is really cool that you've branched out so far, because I guess the initial idea before the Pink Protest was against the Pink Pound and the charge against women. Was that weather? So, no, we started it before that we started it really with this idea that it would be a kind of umbrella activist collective mostly because I think I also felt like 
I cared about so many issues mm. and every group that I joined or everything that I did was kind of very focused on just one thing. So we started it as an umbrella collective. We started by making this video series, um, kind of trying to redefine what activist an activist is and what an activist means. And then that was when we met Amica George and she had just started talking about period poverty. And we kind of worked with her to create the Free Periods campaign and then organise this huge protest where, and we ended up getting like 3,000 girls in Parliament Square, which was very fun. And then we, yeah, we changed, I think, two laws around period poverty, which was very exciting. But the idea is very much to be able to have the freedom to work with anyone mm. and kind of focus on anything, which is really fun. It's interesting, actually, because I wonder how much subliminally that's paid into my um, idea of feminism, because I've definitely followed you since you started the pink protest and like knowing what you've been up to and my idea of feminism over the last five years has definitely evolved from being solely very uh, um, a small-scale women's issue idea in my mind mm. to expanding to everything from race class gender and kind of I kind of see almost anything as feminism now totally and I, I often think whenever I get backlash from people or people being confused about feminism it's actually because they don't understand it mm. and they maybe think it's about like posh white women being more empowered and I'm like actually it's really not about that and it's about very concrete ways in which women and men aren't equal and also I think what I've realized more and more recently is how much the patriarchy affects men as well and how yeah. actually that's a huge part of our fight is kind of how to dismantle toxic masculinity and that whole side of things so yeah it's, it's very broad. I think that maybe initially like certain conversations around feminism were exclusive to posh white women in a time when they were the only ones who had access to be enjoying the conversations and still we as posh white women have the privilege of talking about them but I think what you do so brilliantly is making sure that you're not centering yourself in that conversation and that you do are acting as a platform and a sounding board for other voices and other marginalized groups and it's really interesting you say about bringing men in because this is exactly what it's kind of exactly what I'm thinking about in the minute more than anything mm -hmm. is that whenever I do like feminist events or talks and things, there's no guys there. And as much as I am the first person to be like, you can't say not all men. I'm also the first person to realise like, if there's no men listening to what we're talking about, we're just going to ostracise and make an even bigger chasm between the conversations that we're having. And that's not helpful, but it's really, really hard to engage men when a lot of the time we're talking about, I guess, the idea that is the white cis man, not necessarily like, you personally yeah. as a white cis man. Yeah, completely. I've ha I had this really interesting thing the other day with a friend of mine's boyfriend where we were talking and I was kind of saying the feminism isn't at all against men, it's against the patriarchy. Yes. The patriarchy is this system of power that the world has been run on forever. And he, you know, and I have this phrase which I say, which is that women can uphold the patriarchy just as much as men and men are victims of patriarchy just as much as women. And he just looked at me and was like, when you say patriarchy, I hear men. Like, you can explain it as much as you want, you can, you know, get all theoretical and academic, which I tend to do, but I hear men when you say patriarchy, and I actually think that's a real issue, and I've been trying recently to say, like, systems of power instead of that, because it's true, you know, and it's not against men, it's against this very hierarchical system upon which the world has been created, and yeah, it's, it's very interesting. It is really hard to, t to tread the line and talk about things which we all fit into a category. So even when 
before if someone said a white woman, there would probably would have been a time when I would have blanched and been like, no, it's not me, but yeah. it's not about, it's kind of about the theory of what that label means rather than like what individuals fit under that bracket. Mm. Because it matched in the same way as you're saying like misogyny, people think men, but women can carry just as much misogyny. Yeah, completely. I, I actually think I sometimes go too much the other way where I'm like, oh, white women. Yeah. Like, oh, wait, I actually do have to address that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> I'm allowed to say that. Um, yeah, it's it's very interesting though. And I'm very obsessed with like looking at those systems of power mm-hmm. and analysing how they work and kind of recognising them within my everyday life. And we do have some men that come to our events. We, we do some events which are BYOB, so you get to bring your own boy for free. So oh, I love that. And we, we're getting a few more, but it is definitely hard. And and I think it's hard. The thing that I try and do is like whenever a man or a woman expresses even a tiny bit of interest to be as accommodating as possible and like welcoming because I think often people are scared that they're going to mess up mm. and get backlash and actually we're fighting a bigger enemy you know we're fighting men who literally obsessively don't think women should have rights and yeah. try and take them away so I think I'm quite a passive feminist in some ways and that I, I try and like except anyone who's trying even a tiny bit. I think that's really forward-thinking, because I don't think it's passive. I think it's a really great thing which the left needs to learn from. I can't remember the saying, but it's something about how the left are all so busy fighting with each other that we can't Totally. Get to... The right, like, yeah. close ranks, and the left just eats each other completely. And I also... The thing I've been thinking recently is we need everything. You mm. know, we need... I am, know a lot of feminist activists who are further down the line than me, you know, who really are working to pick apart gender pick apart like non-binary pick apart all these things pick apart capitalism because like the whole of feminism is kind of Mm. fueled by capitalism and we need them and I hope we also need people like me who are like anyone can be a feminist and you just have to believe men and women are equal and here's a very beginner's guide you know that was really what I was trying to do with feminists don't wear pink I um I did my degree in like the history of social movements kind of really focusing on women's movements and I was living in New York and I was part of a lot of like really hardcore feminist activist groups where there were amazing women there and they were all like zero waste zero you know they were just amazing and they Mm. totally lived lived it completely but everything I read and everything I went to I did feel a bit excluded and I was like if I'm feeling this way and I'm getting my degree in it and totally immersed in it like how is anyone ever going to come into this from nothing so I really wanted to make a book that was like all the questions you were too scared to ask or maybe, you know, I think often a lot of people, the first feminist book they'll buy is Roxane Gay's Bad Feminist, which is an incredible book, but it's a really academic book of essays mm. and it's really complicated. And I wanted to make something that was like teenage girls could get it and hopefully realise they were feminists from a young age. It's it's such an incredible and important thing to do because as you say, to make things more inclusive, not only is it academic and that that's exclusionary and that you might not understand it, but how is someone who's not been educated to the level to read that gonna be able to and it will then stay in that pot of white posh feminists. Yeah. And interestingly, I find that a lot of what goes on with feminism is it can go it's kind of like a boomerang where on the one hand, being a vegan zero waste feminist is amazing but also those groups can also then leave other people as you say feeling ostracized and then not include more people so I think we need representation of every kind of 
person into it. And as you say, like, you wouldn't expect a four-year-old to go and do their A-levels. Yeah. You can't, it, it's the same thing. It is a process of understanding and you've got to have someone catering to every need. Otherwise, it will remain an exclusive cult totally. idea. And I think a lot, there's this really funny thing, which is, I think, very inherent to women, where we, there's this amazing, like, study that came out, which was basically saying with investing, men just, make money, invest it, like trust that they'll know how to do that. And women all feel like they need to take a course before they invest Mm. because they're like, I don't know how this works. I don't know what these specific terms mean. I think it's the same with feminism where, and this actually stopped a bit, but a few years ago, everyone I was talking to about feminism would be like, really into this, really like we were saying, I just feel I don't know enough Mm. yet to be a feminist and I haven't read enough and I haven't done enough. And my thing is always like, you do not need to have read anything like, you wouldn't think you need to read anything to think that poverty's bad. Mm. Like, this is a sort of universal issue and you can just start off by saying you're a feminist and then the other stuff can come later or not even come at all. I've had um, pushback from men as well when I've spoken about feminist issues and they'll go, where's your proof and stuff? And it's just another way of shaming you or kind of making you feel like you can't speak up. It's just yes. another way of closing the door and going, you're not qualified enough to talk about your own issues, which yeah. I could tell you a million... I might not have, like... Um, feminist rhetoric from the 1970s to back up my argument but I could tell you that yesterday this happened to me and it was like a real thing yeah and it's funny that we I think it's another way of keeping women quiet to be honest so this is it's true but this is also one of my like very easy tips which is that I have a note on my notes app on my phone Mm. of feminist stats and I have them there at all times and it means if I get anyone saying that I can just whip out these stats and be like well actually um, and that was also like two of the biggest campaigns we've done. One was on period poverty and the other was on FGM, which is female genital mutilation. And the reason I really wanted to focus on both those issues is they're really concrete issues that affect a specific intersection of women. You know, don't affect me, don't affect you. But they're real things that are happening and they're only happening to women. And I think that is quite a good way to get men involved as well because they can see it and they mm. can understand it, you know, and they can see the stats. But yeah, it is, that's definitely a way. And whenever I get, the reason I have the stats on my phone is because whenever I get confronted like that, I just get so emotional and I'm like, I'm like well, I just have spent my whole mm. life feeling less than and I don't think I would have if I was mad. And you're like, I don't want to be whipping out my trauma yeah. just to like prove in a pub that feminism is real, you know? And also I think because we all live as women and we get very used to the way that we are treated, that we kind of, don't realise up until the point when you start to understand feminism that actually all of that is unfair. Yeah. So then when you try to talk about it and a man goes to you, oh no, this isn't your lived experience. It, I actually, it, I know you just get angry because it's yeah. really, really hard to then be like, okay, I'm going to sit down with you. I actually did it the other weekend with some guys that I went to school with and was trying to like explain privilege mm-hmm. and it was just so exhausting. It's so exhausting and you're like, I came to this party and have fun. <laughs> I went to a party the other day and I, I find I never go out and I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go out. And I got all dressed up and I was really excited. I spent two hours at the party having conversations with men trying to prove that feminism yeah. was needed and was real. And I, I literally, after that, I was like, I'm just going to go home. Mm. Like, this hasn't been fun. And I have started recently to be like, I'm not going to fight yeah. this fight right now. Like, you don't need to do it all the time. No, you're right. And it's interesting because what happens to me and this probably happens to you is you'll say one comment which you think is like a really normal thing to say. So just like, obviously you're going to think that because you're a white cis man mm. and then that will just go they'll be like 
are you calling me racist? And you're like, no, 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 it's just that. And then that's it. <laughs> I know, then you're in. Yeah. And then you're in. But what also I want to talk about, I guess one of the reasons why I think you said before that like, you don't go out that much is because of your, you suffer with your mental health. Yes. Which is the next book that's come out, which I also think is important because it's still tied into feminism. Like one of the barriers that we don't see for everyone and part of the intersectionality of feminism is looking at how do we disrupt the barriers that hold people back from being able to live in a world full of yeah. hierarchies, etc. Completely. And I think that was really something I realised. Um, so when we were touring with Feminist Don't Wear Pink, every single event would end up being about mental health. And it wasn't about, you know, straight up anxiety or depression. It was about these complicated blurred lines where women had been through so much that they had just started, it had, you know, cracked their self-esteem, mm. it had cracked their self feelings of self-worth, and they were just in such a low place. And I think actually that's often what happens with oppression is it's not that you recognize you're being oppressed, it's that you think you deserve the treatment that you're getting. And so then you perpetuate it yourself because you're like, oh no, I'm not good enough for this job. I'm, I should actually probably mm. resign. Like I, I can't keep up and you actually can. You're just being made to feel that way. And something I really wanted to do with this book that I felt was a bit missing from the mental health conversation was really look at the intersections of mental health and you know there are two things here there's one which is like mental health can affect everyone you know we talk about male privilege a lot but men are three times more likely to take their own life than women that's actually an area they really lose out on so I really want to say like everyone's story is valid everyone is going through something you don't know like you can be the luckiest seemingly mm. the luckiest happiest person in the world and you can still be really suffering but also let's look at how gender, race, class, disability intersect with mental health and mean that this isn't an equal mm. sphere and this isn't an equal standing. You know, there's so many people in the book that are from like either African families or first generation immigrant families and they're talking about how their parents don't even recognise mental health at all. Mm. And that's an experience that as much as I've been through, I'll never know what that feels like to be told by the people close in your life that you should just pray it away or that you should push on through or that you shouldn't talk about it and there's also a whole area on like access to treatment you know there's three amazing men from Syria in the book and they've had such a hard time finding an Arabic therapist because you know mm. therapy is really scarce on the NHS let alone like a specific Arabic therapist who understands your trauma and it's just I really wanted to look at that and I think that was something I hadn't really seen in the yeah. mental health space. Yeah. I, I think you also present a really good example of something which <clears throat> I've been told and also felt victim to thinking, which is that you, you like I, we have pretty similar privileges, mm. but you suffered really badly with your physical health and then that Im like then implicated your mental health. Yeah. And I think it's really important to outline, and I actually am like talking about this, something that I'm going to post later on, but privilege is separate from what you experience in your personal life. Your privilege is kind of like where you fit into these hierarchies and systems and then your personal life is completely separate. And I think for you to speak so openly and honestly about what you went through shows us that in a really good light because it is actually quite an unusual... I, I don't know, there's not that many people that speak about it in the way that you do up until now. It's definitely coming out more. Yeah. No, completely. And I don't know why I feel really comfortable with it. Like, mm. I think when I was in America, I had a lot... I think I went there sort of thinking like, you know, because I was, I was 19 when I moved and I'd had five years of just hell. 
And I went there sort of being like, I've just been through the worst thing ever. And I think when I was there and I was working with these activists, I really realized that, yes, what I went through was so bad and I wouldn't wish on anyone else. And I don't believe pain is comparable. I don't think you can say to someone like, the worst thing anyone ever said to me when I was bad was like, oh, well, imagine if you were like, you know, didn't have enough food to eat. Like, or imagine if you didn't have a nice bed to sleep on. And I was like, I can't, yeah. and now I am, and it's making me feel worse because <laughs> I'm just sad about those people too. And like, I, I think everyone's pain is valid, but also I know that I went through what I went through in a country that mm -hmm. has a great healthcare system with parents that were tried to be accommodating with money that I could afford treatment and therapy. And, you know, it, it's, the two don't cancel each other out. And I think we need to talk about both. Definitely. I think we need to talk about them in in the exact way of like, what is the, is someone suffering from a chronic mental illness? Have they suffered with their mental health? And then what, how does that fit in with what's their family life like? As you say, like, what's their religion? What's their background? Yeah. And often it comes down to inequality. So the worse you suffer by your privileges, the worse you will suffer with your mental and physical health, which is the most unjust thing in the world. Because if yeah. you're already in a place of bad privilege, it's just such a shame that it, it's often like it goes on in circles so I always think about this but say like when it comes to privilege of class and things like say someone who had to drop out of school during their GCSEs to look after their parent who's disabled mm. then wants to go and get a job later on in life but isn't able to because they've got no work like it's it's just yeah everything everything just adds it adds up and it gets worse which is what's really really hard and really difficult and then we get all the the worst thing is the conversations that people have really in a really chilled way about how oh, these people from this socioeconomic class are X, Y, Z, or there's mm. more mental illness in these places. And it's like, no, you're completely reading the statistics. You're not looking at the bigger picture of it. Yeah, you know I, I, mean? I mean, I always think those statistics are so dodgy anyway because <laughs> we know how many, how few people admit to having yeah. these problems. So I'm like, whenever I see one of those stats, I'm like, well, you know, you're, you're looking at... The, whenever anyone says anxiety is getting worse, I'm like, it probably isn't. It's mm. just no one 100 years was talking about this. I think another thing that's really interesting within that, it just kind of ties to what you were saying, and this is like irrespective of insection, but something I definitely noticed when I when my mental health was really bad is that, you know, it starts off with it just being in your head and I don't know what it is, something wrong with your brain chemistry, trauma, whatever happens. But then as it goes on and on, your life becomes something that would make anyone depressed. Mm. You know, this is what my dad used to talk about this to me a lot because by the time I was 19, I was still as depressed as I was when I was 15, but I didn't have GCSEs, I didn't have A-levels, I didn't yeah. have any friends anymore. I didn't feel like I had a purpose. Like, if anyone was flung into my situation then, even if they had the best mental health in the world, they would have been depressed. So it's very hard to pull your life, try and pull your life back while you're trying to pull your mental health back. Because, yeah, I don't know if that quite makes sense, but it it's just a real snowball effect. It makes complete sense. The first time that I really knew, <clears throat> my dad's family has suffered with depression, but I didn't know that. And when I went to university for the first time, I met people who are my age who spoke about having depression. I didn't know whether or not people had it, I don't know, but no one certainly had spoken about it or definitely not spoken yeah, about medication. Me and now actually once I started talking about it, everyone 
yeah. in my life came up to me and I was like, well, you could have told me this when I was 17. Yeah, and exactly. I thought I was the only crazy person in the world. And, and when I first discovered it, I then it also came with the knowledge that someone who's depressed often is the person that obviously needs your help but will push you away the most. And this yes. was a really interesting thing to learn because I would be like, well, I can just help. And actually, as you say, I think you become really self-destructive. And I think one of the things that happens with when you have low self-worth or bad mental health is that you feel so shit that you don't feel like you're worth love or help and then you push everyone away and on both sides of the coin whether you're the friend or the, the person suffering at the time it completely changes yeah your relationships and I think that was really interesting for me to learn because we all even like being on the other side of it as a friend there needs to be more information out there like someone who's who, with depression or suffering might well act like they don't like you or act in ways that perce- can be perce- perceived as mean because I didn't know yeah. that and it does happen I mean I remember feeling at times, and I still feel this, like, I had become this person I hated, like, I felt so spiteful, I felt Mm. so angry, anything anyone said to me, and I'm a naturally very, like, cheerful person, I think, and anything anyone said to me, I just made me furious, Mm. and even, like, I was horrible to my brothers, I was horrible to my mum, like, everyone in my life, I just pushed away, and I used to feel, I remember feeling so spiky, Mm. and I was like, I just feel like, I have these spikes and it means that anyone who comes near me gets hurt and I know you're not actually talking about adulting as much anymore but for me a a big part of my recovery was pushing myself to this point where even though I still felt awful I was doing a few normal things Mm -hmm. like normal in air quotes but I was doing a few things that were sort of healthy and made me a part of society and made me a person and I could never have gotten better without those things because my life was just this downward slope mm. of like more and more isolation more and more misery more and more sort of you know falling into this hole and it it was actually a lot of those kind of little normal things that ended up taking me out of it every year one thing is always predictable postage costs go up Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Interesting you say about feeling spiky. I felt the exact same. I remember I've never had a depression or anything to my knowledge, but I've definitely been through like low periods. Mm. I remember my last year of uni, I felt really low and I was the same. Like I was felt so upset by everything, but also like didn't want to be nice to everyone. But then I'd say something like, why the fuck do I yeah, do yeah. that? And then you like, it was so self-destructive. And then when I left, I think I needed a change. And it was like mm. that coming to the end of uni, I don't know. And then as you said that, I just started to be like, oh, actually, these things I thought I hated, like making my bed in the morning or being organised. Actually, it's weird how much um, having a routine and being organised genuinely is one of the best things you can do for self-care. it's the best thing. Like, for me, genuinely, if I'm feeling bad, yeah, making my bed, cleaning my flat, doing my laundry, going to get my nails done, like, getting my head, just doing things that Mm. make me feel human again. Uh, And they seem so silly, and I think often they seem quite, like, vain but 
they for me that's what helps like it really helps tiny things like that but it's just making me think even as we're talking about this we've spoken about how like socioeconomic status might impact mental health mm. if you're someone who is has very low income or no income and you're suffering with the mental health and you don't have the um tools to clean mm. or and to make like but it just no wonder it gets exacerbated yeah. it's just those really simple things that we don't think about so many things are privileged I feel like I overuse the word privilege so much that no, I kind of no, wish no. I had another word but everything that we're able to do is still like a massive yeah completely and I think that's definitely one of the issues I feel very conflicted about like the self-care industry um I think it's really self-care is amazing but I also think we need to be focusing more on self-care that isn't paying for things yeah because a lot of the self-care I think we get recommended you have to spend money on money yeah and it's important within this conversation just to talk about things that don't actually cost money. I also think that consumerism in general can be really damaging for mental health because I think I've definitely before looked for happiness in um, consumption of things, whether that's diet products or trying to lose weight Mm. or buying new clothes or constantly searching for external means of uh, making myself feel like I'm better. Yeah. And, like, sometimes... Oh, I mean, I've actually never talked about this before, but I had a total shopping addiction. And, like, still do. Yeah. And it was totally that. Like, I remember talking to my therapist about it and it was like, I just, I thought that, like, buying things <laughs> would make me feel better mm. and it would be tiny things. Like, if I passed, if I was feeling a bit anxious and I passed a news agent, I'd go in and buy, like, a stick of gum or, you know, a drink or, like, a tiny little thing. But mm. it was like, and then I remember at night I would just be on, like, online shopping sites and even if I didn't buy anything, it was, like, filling my basket. And yeah. that feeling of yeah just I can buy my way out of this I can I'll it just there's something I'll get the right coat and then I'll feel like a human again or I'll get the right lamp and yeah. I'll feel happy in my home it was just this you're we're told again and again by this like fucking capitalist mm-hmm. society that we can spend money to make our lives better and it just isn't true it's so interesting now that I'm trying like to not buy news I'm trying to be a bit more sustainable how often I'll catch myself thinking oh if I just had like this top and I'll like like trying to interrogate myself what is it about this top that's gonna like none of your friends gonna like you more yeah you're not gonna be better at your job you're just gonna lose that a million tops like that yeah exactly it's I've weird i've done a thing this year where i haven't bought any clothes all year so good and it, uh, it like obviously a huge part of it was the sustainability thing but also i think for me i couldn't buy less like i felt like i couldn't i was like i need to actually try stopping and then see what happens and it does it makes you question those thoughts and I really had to pick apart the thoughts I have of like if I just had the right dress I'll be able to do this thing and what I hate is I've spoken about this before but I often think that these kind of conversations get cut down and people go oh it's just two girls again talking about shopping and but but again they're so representative like bigger wider problems yeah and it's whatever you struggle with I truly as much you know we can talk about I'm the whole book and you'll see when it comes out it's all about the intersectionality of these things but also like everyone struggles with different mm. things and I I try and I think it's it's worth talking about and also with fast fashion at the moment that kind of shopping really hasn't become like a class indicator I think it's yeah. very universal and sometimes especially in lower income communities they can be fed this messaging of buy things to get yourself out of this even more than yeah anyone else you know but even not about class I think just about 
what we forget is that every single time that we struggle, we're trying to cope in a society. Like all of these things don't happen by accident. Everything is kind of created and you're being manipulated all the time yeah, by whether it's capitalism or the structures or anything like that. And I think what sometimes people try to do, especially people that hold a lot of privilege, is undermine conversations when the topics around them don't sound important. Yes. Whereas it's all super important. Otherwise, why are these companies worth billions of pounds? I see that a lot with this is very separate, but with anything around like the makeup industry or the yeah. cosmetic industry where it's just considered so frivolous. And um, yeah, it's, a, as you say, a billion, billion well, dollar it's, No, I find that really interesting, especially with cosmetics procedures because I kind of flip-flop all the time about what I think about it because sometimes mm. I'm like I don't like that everyone's getting done then it makes sometimes I'm like maybe I should get my I get emails do you want this done and for five minutes I'll be sat there thinking well I suppose I could just get my lips done then I was like then I'd have to tell people no, then am I advertising friend, it all yeah me and my friend have this joke of like should we get lip fillers it's not a joke Maybe we should. Yeah, but the interesting thing is we're being taught that as women, like our greatest capital is our looks. Mm -hmm. And then like one half of feminism is kind of saying embrace your sexual, which I completely agree with. But the other half says, you know, you're you're worth so much more. The the way you look is the least interesting thing about you. And I agree with both of those things. I want to be really sexually attractive, but but I don't want to be told that I'm sexually attractive. And like I'm constantly caught in this conundrum. And then cosmetic surgery, I think, is so interesting because obviously we know the rates of it. It's women is much higher. Yeah. And think about it, you are literally getting butchered yeah. to, to look better, which is kind of sick. But maybe that's just the evolution of... thing is, I think you're like me. I interrogate literally anything that comes into my brain and that could be quite tiring. Oh, yeah, it could be so tiring. I think it's the whole <laughs> mental illness in itself. But I, no, I do agree. And I also think with all of this, it's just your motive behind it. Mm. You know, I definitely have been through phases where I felt like, you know these things would cure me and I think that's often what you see with cosmetic surgery is like yeah people who probably are struggling with a form of depression or anxiety thinking that and being told that if they get this thing done it will help but I also think there's a side of it where like I have found that some of that stuff like you know when I was at my one of my worst points I used to paint my nails like twice a day and that used to really help me Mm. because it was a moment of self-care and it was a moment of like I spent so long hating everything about my body and in such a deep way because I think I'd been through so much illness and pain I was like this body is just a mess and it was for me at least and I never want to like preach anything but for me those things often do help you know and it's creativity yeah (laughs) and that's such a cliche now but there's a reason cliches are cliches for a reason um I think yeah often those things can really help I think as well I said I kind of said this the other day but uh, Jessica Foster, who I absolutely love, is an amazing comedian, always talks about how that. she's so great. She always says that with food, when you're addicted to it, the reason it's so hard to repair your relationship with food is you can't just stop eating, yes. whereas with like alcohol, drugs, whatever. But this is the same for so many things in society. It works the same with clothes. We can't go out the house and not have a face. Like, yeah. Those things are always operating. So to say that you either opt in or opt out is really redundant. And it's kind of why I hate it when people say to me always the argument will be like but you wear provocative stuff well you just how are you feminist I'm like because I can't opt in and out of capitalism or I can't yeah. opt in and out of this patriarchy we have to still no one's ever going to be a perfect feminist because what we think about feminism is completely almost in a utopia which is separate from the world that we live in completely so it's an it's an ideal version but to even try and tear someone down for their attempts is stupid in of itself because mm. it's just ignorant to the fact that we're all um, victims to the powers that be. Like yeah. n- none of us really have power. No, we don't. And I think I've really 
sort of tried to learn in both feminism and mental health to just embrace the contradictions. Mm. And I think I'm so, I've, I'm really proud of where I am. Like, I'm, I, you know, never even thought I'd be able to, like, live a life that was even remotely normal. And I think we can try and be, like, this perfect, this and that and understand everything but also in the end of the day you just have to get through like the hours and get through to the end of the day and I think we just all have to be a bit more forgiving of each other I didn't know if I was going to ask you because I know you talk about it a lot so I didn't want you to feel like you were talking about it again but if people don't know could you want to do because I want to talk a bit more about the book but about what you went through when you were younger because yeah. you just said, like, you've come out the other side of it, and I guess for people who don't have the context. Yeah, I mean, I also really haven't come out the other side of it. I've had, like, the most insane anxiety recently. But mm. I, um, when I was 14, I was, like, a very normal girl. Um, although, actually, I always say that, but looking back, I think I was more anxious than I mm. admit. You know, like, I think I always had bits of anxiety. I could never do sleepovers. That was always my thing. I still don't think I've ever been on a sleepover. Mm. Um, but... Yeah, and then when I was 14, I got very sick. I had a chronic pain condition as a result of an operation. And um, I spent like three years living in chronic pain. I had to drop out of school. I couldn't really walk. I was in a wheelchair, all of that. And during that time, I used to be very insistent on like, my brain's fine. My body's just, you know, going through this thing. And then when I was 17, I had an operation, which thankfully took me out of pain, but I had a complete breakdown and was diagnosed with anxiety, depression and PTSD and then spent another kind of two years really in the middle of it, like couldn't leave the house without having a panic attack, became very, very, very isolated. Uh, And then since then, I would say like, I definitely used to think, I used to have this thing of like being better in my head and I was like, I'll be better one day and I'll be able to do everything and um I'm never going to be there like this is always going to be something I struggle with every single day and it's always going to be the most important sort of factor defining factor in my life but I am a lot better these days than I used to be and um yeah just years of you know trying to figure this stuff out (laughs) the thing is I know what you mean about you think it's going to be better but it's the same it's a really hard spill to pill to all of it once you do it kind of I think it does work Charlie Cox said an amazing thing about how even if you don't suffer from mental illness we all have mental health and that's always going to deviate and it's a bit like how when you realize that happiness you're never just going to be happy forever but you know how you have like fleeting moments of happiness Mm. you just got to take those that might be it that day you might only have one really happy period for an hour and then you feel sad again or whatever and I think that everything is transient and nothing is permanent and we put such a um, binary outlook on mental health and we think you're mentally ill, you're not, you're happy, you're sad. You're, and it's, everything is so much more complicated than that. I saw a really funny thing on Twitter actually where a woman was like talking to her eight-year-old child and she said, how was school today? And they said, oh, yeah, it was fine, but they keep putting everything in boxes and it doesn't make sense. And she was like, what do you mean? And they said, oh, well, why is maths not music and music not maths? They keep labelling everything and the world's much smushier than that. <laughs> and I was like, that is the most literate, that's the most that's perfect thing I've ever read. So we we try to like make things organized into sections and go, this is what this looks like. And actually, at any one given moment in time, you could be feeling ecstatically joyful about your relationship mm. and fear of your career or whatever. Nothing's nothing's permanent, mm. but nothing it, but on both sides, you know. Completely. And I definitely was of that mindset where like 
my only experience with mental illness when I was, or mental health when I was 17 was like people who were very severely, severely ill. And I thought like, okay, I'm one of these people now. And I, I couldn't imagine myself living with the feelings I was going to have and like being in the regular world. I was like, that's never going to happen. Like, mm. And it was only really exactly that when I realised that like all of this is a spectrum and someone, someone, I say that thing about we all have a mental health the other day and someone really questioned me on it. And I was like, it's not an argument. Like mm. it's just a fact. Yeah. <laughs> like we all have a physical health. We all have a mental health. Your mental health can be in top shape or yeah. it cannot be. And yeah, I think for me, another really thing that's really helped has been not expecting to be happy. Like it's exactly what you said. Happiness is amazing when it happens, but it's not a right or a given. Mm. And I, my sort of endless goal is just to feel okay, which is why the book's called Okay. But, you know, just to feel balanced and stable and not really unhappy and if that comes with happiness that's amazing but it's also I think it's sometimes unhelpful to have that thing which I think really sort of exploded in the 60s of like we all have the right to be happy and we all have the right to be you know euphoric all the time Mm. and I mean it's that other thing as well of like if you're feeling happy all the time you wouldn't even know what happiness is anymore because it would become the same so you have to have the lows have the highs and it's I guess it's just never going to be the same for everyone. This is quite a depressing thing, but my sister's fiance always says this. Apparently, everyone has like a, a set level of happiness. Yeah. And then you can only deviate so far from it, but you'll always come to whatever your happiness set yeah. point is. Have you heard that? Is I that think true? So I don't know. I think <laughs> along that lines, I find holidays quite hard. And I think that for me, that's because it feels like this. I'm always searching for like stability and things that will make my everyday life a bit easier. And holidays just feel like this, like, week where you get to be ecstatically Mm. happy and then you have to go back to, like, normality. And, yeah, I've always struggled with that because I'm like, what if I'm not happy this week? And then also, (laughs) what if I'm too happy and then I go back and feel sad? So I think I'd always rather spend any holiday money, like, trying to feel a bit more normal in my everyday life. But I think that's good to know that my sister and I reason talking about how, like, at Christmas sometimes we both revert back to being kids and can be quite like moody because there's like stuff that happened when we were little that we think of like being Christmas time instead of like this really happy time sometimes it can make us not be in a good mood and then you feel so much guilt because you're like this is Christmas and I'm supposed to be filled with joy (laughs) and frankly I feel like a five-year-old I'm gonna have an an actual tantrum last Christmas just because I think I was in this mindset of like you forget memories come back and I think the normalcy of being able to say that is what's really important and also the mental health is really important that we all recognize it because I even said yesterday when it's cloudy outside my mood Mm. is 20 times I find it really hard to motivate myself to do anything and like and we all feel that, but for some reason we're like, oh, it's it, it, it's true. We're all impacted. Yeah. I had someone else who was a bit older read the book the other day. Cause she was, it was like a journalist and she sort of said, like, I didn't think I was going to like it. And I thought it was going to be really whiny. And actually, when she read it, like loads of things in it that maybe she'd never thought of as like mm. mental illness or in the mental health sphere. She was like, oh, yeah, I, I relate, to, relate that. to that so much. And I think all those things are mental health and we just don't talk about it in that way. Yeah, I completely agree. When it comes to, because I love the fact that when, with both your books, you've it's a collaborative effort and mm. that you've 
thought of a subject and you're quite expert on it already but instead of just kind of writing your own piece you've got all these different voices from different places was that always something that you thought you were going to do or did that come to you as you is that something you found impactful yeah I it definitely was I mean I started writing when I was very young I started a blog when I was 15 and then doing a lot of journalism from the age of kind of 16 and so I started having these kind of conversations about books much earlier than I ever thought I would and you know I I just don't think a book on feminism by a 21 year old posh white girl is something I would want to read I don't think it's something anyone else would want to read and I it's something I'm just not interested in and I would never want to make something that I wasn't interested in same with mental Mm. health and what really appealed to me was this idea of making something that expressed all the different areas of a topic and everyone else's sort of views on it and again like we were saying all different intersections all the different ways that this topic can manifest and I just that that was what I always wanted to do and I especially on these two topics it's just never something I would have done on my own. Did you know after uh, Feminist Don't My Pink did you know there would always be another one or did that just come along and you were like this is this is right as well. I think it really came from the the sort of conversation around feminism, mm. I think, and the events and within all the feminist activism I've done, mental health was such a through line and such a recurring topic. And also just, and even with this book, it's it's so interesting. There are so many men in it and obviously there weren't any men in Feminist Don't My Pink. And I kind of thought I understood toxic masculinity and I thought I understood that whole area. I've got three brothers and I think within any feminist conversation, it's something we all like mention a bit at the end of a panel or whatever. But reading these pieces, I was like, I genuinely had no idea it was this bad and I had no idea that it affected men this much in this way. And so that was something else I really wanted to do after Feminist and Pink. Mm. I sort of find a way to get men involved I do that as well on this podcast I very rarely can even think of men that I've had on which is, mm. is so interesting do you have men on it? I have had men I've had Scotty who I think is in love and yeah. um, who else have I had oh I've had Henry Fraser um, so he was paralysed from the neck down when he dived into the sea and now he does amazing paintings wow. with his mouth so the men I've had on um, tend to have some other intersection mm. I think I've oh no I've had two white suspended <laughs> men one of them on to talk about toxic masculinity yes. And another one who's a doctor was talking about like diet culture and stuff. Mm. But uh, I do very much try to make sure that every guest has some kind of intersection. And ironically, white cis men fare very badly in that. Yeah. In I that. mean, they do find in lots of other areas. But yeah, exactly. I do think it was really an amazing process just reading all these pieces mm. and being like, oh, wow, I, I did not quite understand the severity of this. And I think that's where it could really tie it in together. And finally, as we said right at the beginning, bring men into this feminist conversation because I, I agree much in the same way that we you were saying that people might not recognise when something's a mental health issue. Mm. I think there's a lot of time when men don't realise that actually what they're suffering from is the very same thing that we feel like we're oppressed yes, by. exactly, exactly. I think that's so right. And we need to make way more effort to link those two things mm, together. Definitely. Um, okay, so if people want to come and... When's the book out, actually? The book is out on October 3rd. So um, soon. Very soon. Uh, you can get it on Amazon or in all good bookshops. And, yeah, we'll be doing lots of, like, fun events and stuff. So probably 
best follow me on Instagram. Amazing. And you're at Scar. At Scar Curtis. And yes. will you be doing a um, podcast for the book? We're not going to do one yet. I think we might do one maybe at a later date. But yeah, all of Feminist Don't Wear Pink is still up there. Yeah. I think there's so many amazing podcasts within this space. So, um, and a lot of actually people in the book have their own mental podcast. So wanted to give it a break for a minute. But yeah. Yeah, there'll be stuff coming up. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. It's been amazing. Thank you so much for listening, guys. And I will see you soon. Bye. Bye.